If you want to travel fast, go alone. If you want to travel far, take your friends with you. I'm here with David Olney. How are you, David? Very good. Thank you, Tim. That's good. It's good to hear. I've heard you say this quote a few times, and I'll, I'll repeat it again for our listeners. If you want to travel fast, go alone. If you want to go far, take friends. So what led you to kind of adopt that, let's say, mini philosophy? Um, well, it was more something that was interesting that I'd been reading lots of stuff about entrepreneurs in Silicon Valley mm. and a pile of the guys at Google Ventures. And variations of the line kept coming up in what they were doing. That so often there's a focus in Silicon Valley or in the tech world on the amazing person. And it's that what they've recognized is that amazing person might be able to get everyone started, but everyone will be able to add the value that means they eventually really get somewhere. So it was a way of trying, I think, politely to say to people who had good reason for their ego, yeah, but did you really do it on your own? Can you really do it on your own? And should you even want or try to do it on your own? And you know, I just tried it out on you guys last semester because I thought you are such a network generation. You do everything with someone or at least someone can know what you're doing through social media. So you're the perfect example of, okay, you lot are definitely interconnected, but where are you going? So it was kind of a to see what you did with it, see if you would get the significance of it and see if you would reflect on yourselves as, gee, we are very connected, but where have we gone? So what did you make of it when I first said it? That it's far easier to do something quickly without other people. That's that's, yeah. how, that's mostly what I took away from it. So really you took the thing of at the moment still being at uni and going, need to get work done, need work done well. This means lock in room, shut other humans out. Which is what I did last semester, yeah. Because so, it works at uni. Yeah. And this is the terrible thing, the juxtaposition between university in most disciplines and then the world for most people once they leave uni is at uni there is a prize for working in isolation intensely. Mm. You can't sustain that for 40 years. And you don't know enough. In mo- you know, Most people will never know enough to be able to be a, a one-person band their whole professional life. So part of the whole point with complex problem solving in the semester was to get you to start to recognize, okay, I have to make you do group work. It's part of the mandated assessment at the University of Adelaide at the moment. But can I get you to start seeing the value in taking people with you? And I would argue on the basis of the quality of the presentations and the written work at the end of the semester from the groups, whether people reflected deeply on the idea, you know, if, if you want to go far, take your friends with you. Every group did it. So what did your group do? Did they have fun being a group? Well, I yeah, develop relate like friendships, relationships, you know, existing ones and new ones that I'll probably take with me at least for the next few years. So And I suppose at the practical level, the intellectual level of the exercise, how much broader did the project end up being because everyone started listening to everyone rather than dominating. <laughs> yeah, it certainly the end product was a lot more than each of us could have ever achieved individually. Yeah. So so it's that old thing that the whole is greater than the sum of its parts, mm. which, you know, that who knows how many variations of, ex- of that have existed in human history. Mm. And we all sort of know it's true, but it doesn't give you any kind of prescription. And when you're teaching people in a hurry, 
you can't just sort of put an idea in space. You need it in some way to be prescriptive or directive of what behavior could you instantly implement to help you get this better outcome. So I think this is what I really like about the thing of you want to travel fast, go on your own. If you want to travel far or if you want to get somewhere, take your friends. I'm making that point, take your friends is the nice and easy thing to say, but it could as equally be take your colleagues. Mm. Take other people who care about the same topic. Take the people that, you know, misfortune in the universe have dumped in front of you. (laughs) You don't have to start as a cohesive posse. Mm. The process of working on something meaningful together can get us there. We've begun on the beginning of it. If you want to travel fast, go on your own. Now, that unfortunately is an awful lot of university. Mm. It's an awful lot of stuff where you get an independent mark on work to prove you've absorbed and extended on knowledge. Mm. And that's great. And in a world where you can do that long term, that's awesome. But what I see when I go out and do consulting work is in nearly every environment I go to, Everyone's in teams. Those teams change fairly frequently and they bring in other expertise, that it's multiple disciplines, multiple skill sets. And the big thing people know is they've got to work better in teams. So there's a a difficult transition from independent assessments and achievement to we either rise together or fall separately. It's hard to reconcile for me with... Uh, a thing that I've heard said in a few different ways that you kind of are a result of the people that you hang around with. Yeah, which is another way to sort of invert the second part Mm. of the saying. So, you know, last episode when we were talking about meritocracy, okay, it's a great idea to let people achieve on the basis of their effort and their ability. But also when we were talking about the example of you go to the job interview, You've got to the job interview because your CV has already showed you're competent. Mm. So things start meritocratically but end tribally. Do you fit the tribe? And this is the thing. Universities are so focused on rationality because what we need to train you to do is be as rational as possible because the rational bit doesn't come easy. The emotional bit comes easy. I want to fit, I want to belong, I want to have friends, I want to be part of a group, I want to be valued for being me. Well, the best way to be valued for being me is to make sure that everyone else likes me. Mm, mm. So there's a terrible juxtaposition in individualism is a wonderful idea that you want to be the best version of you you can be, the version of you you want to be, but at what cost in your social status and your sense of belonging? Yeah, I must admit I've kind of gone through a transition where... I have been perhaps more self-driven than some of the other people that I've surrounded myself with. And then thats it's been harder to take my friends with me when they're not as motivated. Yeah, but that's that thing as time goes on. And another thing where uni is strange. Uni is strange because everyone's there because they sort of have to be. Whether it's to live at home for free or because it's the only way to get the career they want. Mm. Everyone's there under duress for what comes next. Mm. Very few people are just at uni because it's fun. Mm. Now, it can be fun, but it just isn't fun. So getting everyone on the same page can be very difficult because everything's got a future focus. Mm. So the intellectual side has a future focus, but the social side is now. So there's always an imbalance in time perception too. Mm. If you're socially connected now, you're not worried about the future. If you do intellectual hard work now, it's for the benefit of the future. So just from observing you in class and doing the podcast, 
you've got the ability to do the social thing well and to work very hard. Mm. For you, the balance is how do I do the two things at the same time? <laughs> because then you have to do the intellectual thing well but differently. Well, it feels like this feels for me, and I hope you would consider it the same way, that we're kind of friends. This feels like a first step in that direction. Precisely. Mm. Yeah, That's the point of something being, you know, the podcast might be called Blind Insight and it might have a goofy picture of me, <laughs> but it wouldn't exist without you mm. because you've got questions. Mm. And your answers are well thought out. I just add more book knowledge or more time, <laughs> mm. which either adds or diminishes or changes or alters both our perspectives. Mm. So this is the thing about if you want to get somewhere, take your friends. Yes. Because they will change you, you will change them, and together what comes out of it if there is that focus on getting somewhere. So again, what happens if a group of friends you know, sit around a TV on a Saturday night with five pizzas and beer? Does anything constructive happen? I'm inclined to say no. no it, <laughs> yeah. it possibly can. Yeah. But all, all the cues and clues are for a social event. Mm. Mm. You know, if you want to do work in a group first, you maybe turn up with coffees and yeah. the prize for getting the work done is the beer and pizza after. Yes. So you know, a group has to change gear in order to be effective. And sometimes that can mean that the leader has to really get them motivated. But then that's not, I think, the kind of effective group that people are talking about in Silicon Valley. Yes, someone may have the profound breakthrough, the big first idea. Mm. But with all the things that are involved in doing something complex, everyone should bring something really useful to the table. You can probably see certain people in your life are skilled in certain ways. How... As a, like say, a leader, how in the Silicon Valley ex example would you motivate people to come with you on your journey? Well, this is the interesting thing. If you look at lots of the very successful uh, companies and ideas in Silicon Valley, they start with a group of friends from college who went through together or didn't finish together or they're friends from first job after college. So they're friends from that period where people are still very open to other new people. Hmm. It's the period where for Australians, you know, we don't tend to go away to go to college, to go to university. Americans do. It's a deliberate rite of passage. At 18, you bugger off across the country and meet all new people and learn to be sociable or have a miserable four years. <laughs> yeah. So it breeds an openness to new people and new situations. Whereas here in Australia, part of our problem is that really other than ANU and maybe Melbourne and Sydney Uni, mm -hmm. most people get on the bus or train to uni. And at night they go home to family and they go home to their pre-existing group of friends. So there is an openness to new people in that model that helps create entrepreneurship and bring people together in America. Mm. That is a really massive advantage. They're more open to the new. And that that newness is about all the different ways people connect. That it can be socially they make sense to each other, but also their dreams fit well together. The interesting thing is watching what happens when teams have to start growing. You know, when a company goes from the first five friends to have to start hiring the outsiders. And you watch consistently, it's, well, let's have a friend of one of the friends. Mm. And then let's have a friend of the friend's friend. Let's try and get the thing where there will be the social cohesion and the skill set and intellectual capacity necessary. And this is why that there is sort of an organisational limit of where things can run really well before there's too many people 
and it gets harder and harder to keep them on the same page. So, you know, the wonderful book, The Year Without Pants <laughs> by Scott Birkin. Scott Birkin, ex very serious Microsoft team leader, very heavily involved in the development of Internet Explorer, done everything he can do in big teams in a big organisation, has been away writing books and wants to write a different book about, well, what's it like to be in a little startup rather than in a, you know, a monolithic organisation? And he goes to WordPress as employee number like 53 or 56 or 57. It's just getting to the point where the founder doesn't have time to keep everyone organized and needs a team leader to lead a team doing their bit of the projects. And it's fascinating, Scott Birkin taking individuals and going, well, how can we be an effective team? How can we best work together? How can I make sure you lot know what the organization is doing as a whole, but I can shield you from the day-to-day stuff so you can do our individual projects well? And I think in that book is a better explanation of the difficult growth pains of going from friends to now people are very talented, but they're not friends, and yet the organization's small enough they really need close relationships. So this is why you know, there is a whole world of sort of corporate psychology, you know, corporate anthropology, corporate sociology, to understand what do you do when there's more people than there are good existing relationships mm. and you need to build a cohesive culture. So it's one of those wonderful throwaway phrases that tells you to get started on building a team of friends without really telling you how to do it or what the implications are. <laughs> but I think it's important that it says friends. You were saying it's interchangeable with colleagues. Well, no, I'm saying that yeah, not interchangeable that you would need to make a second gear in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Because with colleagues, if it's going to be really good, you don't absolutely have to be friends. Yes. But you need to be more than strangers who work together. Yeah, agreed. Okay. And we don't have a good word for that, I don't think. <laughs> you know, colleague is kind of our polite word, but mm. what does the polite word mean? It's like the other week when we were talking about tolerance. Mm. You know, often at work you tolerate colleagues. <laughs> what ideally we want to do is engage with our colleagues, mm. embrace shared beliefs and shared values, and create a productive and supportive culture. Now, that's about 27 books on corporate psychology in that two sentences. <laughs> if we wanted to do the work to make it work. Mm. So how do you make it work? What comes across to me in saying that it is friends, when I extrapolate that, and perhaps this is just bias from what I've learned from you, that it looks away from the traditional corporate hierarchy and structures. Mm. Yeah, You're looking at other people as friends as opposed to mm. this person beneath me or, mm, or above me. What we're trying to hear is talk about the fact that the old economy of hierarchy was good at doing the same thing slowly with slight revision. Mm. And there's nothing wrong with hierarchy in those terms. Expertise being put in charge of other people who are learning to be experts to get the experts' jobs done so the tasks are achieved, not really a major problem in lots of fields. But when the world starts to change so fast, the expert is not the person with 20 years' experience. The expert might be the 22-year-old who dropped out of university. Mm. And how do you get that person to work with someone with 40 years' experience in a company? You have to have a different model. So I'm really interested in you know trying to help people understand, yes, there's aspects of hierarchy that are very good. It's very good for achieving strategic alignment, making sure everyone knows what the big picture goals are. It's very good for allocating resources because it understands what everyone in the organisation needs and what the resources are 
and can do the fairest job of divvying them up. And if the hierarchy does it, rather than teams squabble over it, it's, well, the decisions come from the people who had all the information. We may not like it, but what can we do about it? We can make a case for more resources when they're available, but the decision's been made for now. So it helps people know what's their responsibility, what's not. But more and more what we see now is things that start as a group of friends in a flat network. And flat networks can only get so big before they're too complicated to Mm. manage. Mm. And you at the very least need team leaders. Mm. Now, do you remember when we did the exercise of me giving out bits of paper and, you know, getting you guys to make the tallest thing you could with two sheets of paper? Yes, yes. And then putting you in teams of whatever size you wanted to be in. Yeah. Do you remember watching Alexa when she got the penny drop of putting three teams together so Mm. she had 30 bits of paper? That's right, yeah. And how tall did that tower end up? It was probably over a metre. Yeah, (laughs) which was the great thing. Mm. So the point of this pieces of paper exercise for the audience is it's an exercise that's been done for a lot of years now. You give people one or two bits of paper and you say, make the tallest structure you can or the tallest freestanding structure with your bits of paper. No talking, no sharing. Mm. And there really are very limited options there. You With two pieces of paper, you can roll one into a tube, tear a bit off the other one, make a platform, put it on top. So best case scenario, you can get the height of two A4 sheets. Mm. But when you say, okay, now with your two bits of paper, in groups of whatever size you want to work in, what can you build? Then you get the leader who can see the benefit of bringing the groups together. Mm. Then you get the person who's come up with what they think is a good idea for the structure. Then you get people who are good at monitoring from the sides. Is it leaning or tilting? Then you get people who are good at going and sucking other people in to bring more bits of paper. Mm. And then you get people who really just contribute their bits of paper. But <laughs> and that's is, okay. Yeah. And is that because it's like such a light subject that people yes. don't get... They don't agonise. Yeah. People, the, the great thing with it is it becomes, well, in 99% of cases where I've run it, it becomes fun within 30 seconds. Mm. And the minute it's fun, it's okay if someone else is leading. It's okay if someone else had a brilliant idea. It's okay if you're just the person who goes, hey, it's leaning, it's leaning, careful, careful. Mm. It's okay if you're the person who just surrenders your two bits of paper and cheers for your team. Mm. But, you know, I've never found a faster way of teaching people how to work in a group. Mm. So, you know, by the time you guys were finished, you were all laughing, you'd all had fun. There were some pretty big towers, there was paper everywhere. And I said, okay, now what are all the different roles that have emerged in this process. You know, we have the obvious leader like Alexa, who because of her corporate experience went, ha ha, <laughs> I can apply all my experience here mm. and make a super team. But she didn't have the big engineering idea. Now some teams rolled bits of paper and made cylinders. Some teams started folding them to get equilateral triangles, which would be more stable. Yeah. Some teams had people where multiple people were monitoring. You know, was it leaning? Some people had one person who was the brilliant, stable hand, you know, steady fingers, person putting paper down. Mm. And yet even the people who just handed their papers over and enthusiastically cheered had fun. And you really need all these people in a team. And if you are standing as a team of equals, but then someone has the good idea, but someone's good at organising, but someone's good at getting the resources together, but someone's good with their steady hands. I don't remember any team on the day that just sullenly you know, sat in the corner and didn't have a go. And because it was light, 
Yeah. Well, there's this um, great quote by G.K. Chesterton. I'm sure you're possibly aware of it. It's It's been badgered. I'm not even sure if this is necessarily the origin, but angels can fly because they take themselves lightly. What a wonderful comment. I've never heard it, but I like it. Mm, it kind of has that. Yeah. Uh, if you want to teach a big, but, yeah. deep thing, <laughs> mm. don't do the big and deep until they've started to fly. Mm. And that was a great thing when we sat down after as a group and went through, okay, who was a leader? Who was an engineer? Who had steady hands? Who accumulated resources? Who went off and co-opted the last little team of three to come and join a big team to put all the resources together? Yeah, so who was a negotiator? Who just handed over their two bits of paper and had fun? But it's okay to be the person in the team that just does good work, i.e. providing your bits of paper. There's nothing mm. wrong with that. Mm. As long as you do that well and you don't white ant the team and the team listen to you the day you do have a really cool idea, that's fine. You don't have to lead a team to enjoy being in one. Mm. You can be the most junior person in a team really getting on things defined by other people. But as long as you feel that they listen to you when you do have an idea that you think is valuable, it's okay being the bottom of the food chain. And it's not an awful thing to not necessarily have an idea on every no. project. It's, it's probably likely, especially in a situation such as paper, how many possible ideas are there? So therefore, you know, there are going to be so many people that have the same ideas. Yes. So... I'm sure in the the diversity might mean in then other subjects that you might have different ideas, mm. but you know, in terms of paper. Mm. <laughs> but the great thing is look at the cohesion from doing the paper exercise early in the semester mm. to who ended up in the groups working on their reports together. Yeah. Yep. And it, it started to sow the seed of openness. Mm. And it started to sow the seed that there was almost someone in every group who said the same thing when I went around and sat with groups. And it was, I don't mind what I work on. You guys do the bits you're really keen about. And as long as I understand what I'm meant to be doing, I'm happy to do the other bit. That was totally the summation of our group. Yeah, absolutely. We went through this incredible, <laughs> rather <laughs> strenuous process of picking our topic for one of our final reports right mm. and we did it all very democratically we had you know a list of maybe 30 different topics that we could have chosen from and then everyone you know picked their top five and then we had some commonality there and then we all kind of voted on the the most popular ones and it ended up that we only had two people that really wanted to do the topic that we mm. chose um, and so we had three people out of out of the whole five that were not it was not their like major or first preference, mm. and yet they were still very committed. Exactly, and we ended up turning out a product that you know, at least I'm very proud of. So, mm. and that's the thing of getting buy-in, and you know you can try and teach people the theory of all of this, mm. or you can give them a throwaway line, and then bits of paper. Mm. And you know the throwaway line was the same day as the bits of paper, and from that point because it worked, you know. I knew that the whole class were going to be okay with group work. Mm. Yes, there may be some difficult moments. There may be some people, because they're under pressure in other subjects, had trouble. But most people were going to be okay most of the time. Mm -hmm. And that's a pretty rare thing in group work at uni. It's funny how little communication there is between, this is a side note, basically uni itself, but there's a little, little communication between the different subjects that 
it is, you do end up in situations where you're highly stressed and then lulls mm. because none of the subjects coordinate with each other and you end up yeah. in situations where you've got three things due on the same day and yeah. all that other kind of thing. It's a wonderful comment you know, commonly used in the army, mm. hurry up and wait. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it it's okay for a few years of your life but you don't want it to be normal for mm. your working life if you can start working on a better way to have a group that has flexibility and yet this is what i see when i'm out doing consultancy is that most groups now work together on something and then someone goes on and does another thing and someone else slots in there's a constant rotation of people and there's a need for new ideas but also to maintain consistency of quality, you can't have radical, crazy ideas. So a system boast has to respect its past and what it's achieved, but be open to adapting. Mm-hmm. So you know the whole thing of it, it coming out of sort of Silicon Valley, that you know if you want to travel fast, travel on your own, but if you want to get somewhere, take your friends. It doesn't work the same way in an old institution with a pre-existing corporate culture. So there we're after, okay, you're used to working in definite teams in definite ways with definite hierarchy, but the new challenges make that less efficient. How can we bend you a little bit towards this different team structure where there's a little bit more equality in where the ideas come from on who might have the best way to plan how to move it forward? So I was trying to get you as a class to see that you can build a team from scratch that that can be productive. Mm. But part of what will be both interesting and difficult for all of you after uni is going into environments, no, no, we have a structure. Mm. No, no, we have a culture. Yeah, (laughs) and you have it, and it's better to have one than not have one. But is it still 100% relevant? Now, if it's only 90% relevant, that means there's some wiggle room to do something new. Mm. I would argue that in most pre-existing hierarchies, they're down to about being 50% relevant. They're good at keeping what worked alive, mm. but they're not very good at working out what works today and they're terrified of working out what works tomorrow <laughs> for good reasons because it will mean breaking something they cherish. Yeah. It's a, it's, an, it's a risk, you know. It's The nice part about being conservative in the structures that they have is that they still work to 50% and yeah. you know, that's, it's, it's, it would still be a positive risk to try something new but at least the way they have it it's not complete failure yes and then we get really crazy organizations Mm. who are both highly structured and also reasonably adaptive so you know let's take you know chris hatfield's book Mm. uh, an astronaut's guide to life on earth and his descriptions of nasa and all these great interviews and and your videos he's made here's a highly structured organization that periodically gets fixated on what it did yesterday has a disaster or a big oops goes and remembers to be adaptable Mm. and only wants adaptable people and doesn't want them to lose their adaptability and actually tries to build in to the structure here's things we know how to do well already what bits are new what bits do we need to test multiple good alternatives for how to do that new thing well Mm. so you know, when you can have a structure that says we keep the good by testing it's still good, we develop the new by acknowledging things change and we need to keep getting better, you're accepting a dichotomy. We want the best of the old and the best of the new. Mm. And just going, there will always be friction, there will always be discomfort between keeping the best of the old and creating the best of the new. 
But that is such a wonderful dichotomy to accept. You accept the pain and run with it. Mm. Oh, it itches, it hurts, ow. <laughs> you know, there's sand in my shoe. Well, yes, there is, but you're still walking. There is a someone who talks a lot about this out there, um, Penny Lacasso, who talks about an intentional adaptability quotient, mm. which is you know, different to your EQ, your emotional quotient, and your mm. IQ, your intelligence quotient. Um, perhaps, you know, could be considered in a triangle perhaps of all three of those or perhaps even in the middle of the spectrum. Yeah, but if we did something like I think if we, if we drew it with EQ and IQ as the bottom corners mm. with, you know, intentional adaptive quotient mm. being the pinnacle of the triangle, mm. that to me would be the logical way to draw that up. Yeah. And, yeah, hopefully soon we'll be able to have Penny on the podcast. Because Definitely. Yeah, it brings so many ideas that we're interested in together. And this is this thing you you don't want to throw away the positives you have, but you want to you know accentuate them and get new positives. Mm. And that that is a wonderful way to understand how to work as a group, but also how to work individually. Mm. If you are aiming to develop your intentional adaptive quotient by working alone, but remembering. I'm upping my skills here, but not just to use in this way. Mm. When I go to the group, I'm perhaps going to have to eat a bit of humble pie <laughs> and not go, I've got the best new idea ever because everyone else has been working on their own too. So they might have the best new idea ever. But when the group get together, can you have a first 10 minutes of saying, what are the coolest things everyone's learnt in the last month since we worked together as a team? What's anyone learnt that they want to share that we could add to us working effectively as a group? Mm. Seems trivial. But it's that thing of inclusion and buy-in. You've asked for everyone's opinion. You've listened to everyone quickly. If it sticks and it's good, great. And from a managerial point of view, how wide are you then casting your net? You've essentially got a team of people that are all interested in different things, that are learning different things, that can possibly stumble across something that you might never have stumbled across if you were left to your own devices. Yeah, what's the wonderful point that Jocko Willink and Leif Babin make in their first book. Mm. You know, Jocko as a SEAL officer does not want to do the plans for his platoon. That's their problem. He can go in and check it with his extra experience and training and then add his two cents worth. But they're a group of people. How could his one brain be better than them together and then him doing oversight after? Mm. Why would you not want to let people take ownership of what they're doing and have enthusiasm for we are genuinely contributing to our path forward and the positive outcome we're going to achieve. Mm. Sounds like a good note to end on. Thank you very much for coming in and teaching me a lot about friends. (laughs) Thank you for great questions. (laughs) Cheers, Dave.